0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, where this week we're going to the heart of Europe via the string quartet, going under to the music of Elaine Redig in Berlin, improvising our way around some anti-skate architecture in Dublin and swaying to the samba in a forest in Rosscommon. But we begin in Galway. Back in 2018, when Galway Music Residency planned a project for Contempo Quartet to play quartets by composers from all 27 EU member countries, it was a leap into the unknown. But while everyone was ready to immerse themselves in unfamiliar music from throughout the continent, the extent of the unknown expanded rapidly with the arrival of the pandemic. Suddenly there were postponed dates, shifts online, and the mission was even interrupted by an anti-vax protest but next week composer jane o'leary and the other organizers will reach the conclusion of their unexpectedly extended voyage through europe not before however the pandemic had one last tilt o'leary tested positive for covid as we were to speak and was forced to ifh interview from home
1: We've had it all. We had our first concert in 2021 that was live. It was Cesar Frank Cortez from Belgium. Uh, Magnificent work. And there we were all excited with our COVID testings and passes and everything getting into the church. And an anti-vax protester was walking up and down outside. And as soon as the music started, she began banging on pots and pans with a heavy metal spoon. We couldn't hear anything. It was deafening and shocking, I have to say. Very shocking. We called the guards and that took care of it. They were great. They came and they stayed for the whole concert. (laughs) I think they just wanted to make a point and I I suppose the lesson you learn is that we got more publicity for that than we got for any other concert. (laughs) The project is part of the Galway Music Residency Programme, and... I guess it started about four years ago, we began to think about it. At that time, Galway was thinking about being um, bidding to be a cultural capital of Europe and people were all excited about the potential of European projects. But that wasn't really what we were trying to do, but it led us to investigate what was possible in a European context and we realized that there were 27 countries, that's excluding the UK, which was on its way out at the time. I had seen some other projects, whether they were with poetry or art or something, and I I was quite um, curious about the idea of investigating the music from all these countries, because some of them we would know so well, others we wouldn't know at all. There were kind of two categories, the central European countries that we hear all the time and that we know composers and we know so much about them, Germany, Austria, Italy, France. I mean, those in particular, no question, there's, there's quite a choice. And other countries, I'm um, just thinking Belgium, César Frank stood out. He only wrote one string quartet, so there was no problem there. But even with Germany and, and Italy, there was a lot of discussion which quartets and there was lengthy arguments. One of the difficulties was actually that it had to be a string quartet. And while you might have a major significant quartet, the, the first one, I think we had Debussy's Quartet for France. And that was absolutely wonderful and, and an obvious choice. Many of the countries were places that we, we had no idea of any composers. And we all investigated and we just did the usual internet search, starting with uh, kind of famous composers from Croatia. <laughs> and you'd be amazed. You'd see all these names. And they'd just say, right, never heard of any of these. And then you'd wonder, why have I never heard of any of these? Then you had to investigate each one of them and see had they written string quartets and that was another problem in places like Malta and Cyprus. We found there there really were no string quartets until the contemporary era, but we didn't want only contemporary It seems like string quartets were almost a you know part of the the central European ethos, but but not so much as you move to the edges. It was a very interesting discovery to find at the end of the 27 concerts that we had found 10 women composers to include in the programme most of which, I, I'd say all of them really, except for myself, <laughs> hadn't been performed before in Ireland. And we found some wonderful people and particularly interesting life stories. For example, Esther Maji, she was called the First Lady of Estonian Music, born in 1922, and she lived to be 100 imagine that. And she wrote three string quartets, so we played her, her second one. We certainly know Sibelius more for his symphonies and he would be the most famous composer from Finland, so he was an obvious choice. He had written two quartets in his younger years, but they're not very profound works, whereas this one that we're going to perform on the 5th of April, Intimate Voices, is from 1909. It's it's the only major work for string quartet from Sibelius' mature period. It's magnificent. He doesn't like to talk about his music he says in fact you know how the wing of a butterfly crumbles at a touch so it is with my compositions the very mention of them is fatal (laughs) I won't try to describe the piece but I know that he wrote this intimate voices on the manuscript and indeed quartets are our conversations intimate conversations
0: Jane O'Leary there, and that From Europe With Love series finale featuring Sibelius is on Tuesday 5th of April at 1.10pm in St. Nicholas Church, Galway. Eventbrite.ie for tickets. Over many years, Dublin artist and skateboarder Matthew Stickland has been tracking the multiple ways his city cancels his and everybody else's ability to use the space exactly as they wish. As part of his resistance to the Urban Obstacle course, he's published a zine Offensive Architecture, which describes his project to present some ways to navigate creatively and reclaim the space. For his work, Stickland chose four emblematic Dublin sites, including Portobello Harbour, a flashpoint in the battle for public space during the early days of the pandemic and where files Anya Gallagher met Matthew to encounter some offensive architecture.
2: I became familiar with defensive and hostile architecture through growing up trying to skateboard and, and just sort of realising that it was all over the place and I think I developed sort of like a, a keen enough eye for it. My name is Matthew Stickland. I'm a Dublin-based artist. I'm the author of the self-published zine, Offensive Architecture, which is part of an ongoing project I'm working on. Today we're here at Portobello Harbour, which is one of the locations which featured in my zine.
1: I haven't been up at this harbour In about two years, I'd say, and it's changed massively since then. From what I can see, there's just much less open space and basically the public space that was here is no longer here.
2: So they've started the development of a hotel that's being built here, which has um, turned what was the public space of Portobello into about a third of what it was before. A lot of what was here is now just a, a construction site. So this place would have been like very important to me for my entire life, sort of growing up really. I mean since I was about the age of maybe 11 or 12, I've been coming up here and and trying to to skateboard here. I'm a Dubliner and I I didn't grow grow up a million miles away from here so this was sort of like the location for, for me and a lot of other skateboarders in fact from all around Dublin. To come and uh, meet up. So, th- this place has been very important, I'd say, particularly to skateboarders in Dublin. The project is based around a thing commonly referred to as hostile or defensive architecture. So, that's when um, sort of a mechanism is incorporated into a place's design to stop it being used for a certain purpose. So, if people are familiar with Portobello Harbour, they'll know that there's these like sort of silver ball bearings on the, the benches here to stop the skateboarders from using it.
1: Do they actually work?
2: I mean, you sort of find a way around them when you're like skateboarding, I guess. But they do work. Essentially, they do work. So, my my project was to um, take measurements of of the defensive or hostile architectures around town and. Um, Use those measurements to design my own street furniture type sculptures that would slot into the defensive architecture or go on top of it to to sort of make it useful for whatever purpose I, I thought was being taken away from the defensive architecture the little silver ball bearings that they have here to, to stop people from grinding on the ledges. I uh, took measurements of them and I built a bench using just an EnviroPly like wood and stainless steel coping that was able to like slot on top of the, the silver ball bearings and then I, I just um, put the word out to various skateboarders that uh, I know because I wasn't even really skateboarding at that stage but people came down and skated it so it just basically made Portobello usable as a skate spot again. What was particularly good about Portobello is I guess it was also like sort of like a hangout spot for skateboarders and stuff as well but obviously like now that it's just, you know, sort of less space it's like less attractive to people to come and just hang out And there's just much more of a hostile feel about it, I suppose, never mind the fact that some of the the ledges are gone. It's it's just um, the feeling of hostility around here these days sort of um, stops skateboarders from coming down and using it as much as they would have. I think there's a few ways in which Dublin can feel hostile. I love Dublin, but there are particular ways in which it does feel hostile to me. And I I think there is more art spaces opening up, and I hope that trend continues. And um, to me, that makes Dublin feel a lot less hostile, like, you know, like people taking things into their own hands.
1: Dublin City Council, let's say, or whoever is in charge of our public spaces, why are they so against people hang out in them, or people communing.
3: A,
2: a money-making thing, I, I would imagine, I mean, for, for, for the most part, I mean, this is like the portobello space, has just been given to, to a hotel to, to be built here. So people care a bit more about making money than, um, you know, providing the people who live in Dublin, particularly, like, in an area like this, where, like, you know, I mean there's so many like apartments and stuff around here like no one really has a garden something like this is like beautiful not just for for like skateboarders but for just everyone around here unfortunately i suppose the priority is to to make money off the likes of a hotel as opposed to provide for for the people that are actually living here
1: and how do you find it being an artist in dublin
2: uh, it has good points and bad points. I'd say that the actual artists in Dublin are great, and like Dublin and Ireland, as usual, like punches above its weight limit for sure in terms of just the the quality of the art that comes out of people here. Um, like the community and the people are great, but sometimes it's it's hostile. But like I was saying, you know, it seems more and more that people are taking things into their own hands, and you know there's some smaller sort of like spaces to exhibit and stuff that are popping up and people are just like making the most out of the city and doing like fly by the seat of their pants sort of like pop up exhibition type of things in different places and that's all very cool. I love that part about about being an artist in Dublin and um like I say that the artists are just great. It's just sometimes harder, you know, any like expensive city, it's going to be hard to be an artist in, in the first place. But um, you know, if people can make it work, then it's beautiful.
0: Matthew Stickland there was talking to Anya Gallagher about Dublin's offensive architecture. And we're off to hear some drone in Berlin next on the Culture File Weekly. On the program for this year's Berlin Mertz Music Festival was an appropriately epic celebration of the composer Eliane Redig, who turned 90 in February, featuring a lifetime's worth of her electronic compositions. This happens at a moment when, despite a long career pioneering electronic music, her work, according to our correspondent Liam Cagney, has seldom been more in tune with the times. Cagney recently attended one highlight event of the Redigue celebration an epic and semi-recumbent performance in the city's planetarium, preceded by a sauna, the life of a music critic.
3: The pianist Alfred Brendel once pointed out that the word listen is an anagram of silent. When we're absorbed in listening to music, speech and noise fade away. Silence, paradoxically, is inherent in music. In our world of TV and traffic jams and Twitter... Contemporary classical music is increasingly exploring silence. Nor more is this the case than in the music of pioneering French electronic composer Iliano Khadig. From the 1970s on, using an ARP 2500 synthesizer, Radigue recorded a series of radically minimal electronic works. There are few surface features at all, just an almost silent, subtly changing drone. Like plants, immobile but always growing, Khadig said. My music is never stable, it's ever changing. But the changes are so slight that they're almost imperceptible. Khadij's is contemplative music, music of color and beauty, that for years went underappreciated. But recently she's getting her juice. Now 90, she was this spring the focus of the Berlin festival Mutes music was for the first time airing all of Khadij's electronic works. I couldn't resist getting tickets for the epic three-hour-long Trilogie de l'Amour*, a work based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. For various reasons, I've been heavy with stress recently, and I was looking forward to the solace of Radig's quiet music. The evening didn't start well. Before the concert, since it was my partner and Johnny's birthday, we booked a couple of hours at a spa called Fabali. The tree-fringed fabali is decked out with bamboo canopies and you walk around naked, which takes a bit of gumption for an Irish person. The saunas are supposed to be quiet spaces. But no sooner had Indrani and I entered the sauna to relax, than two people began bantering loudly. I plucked up the courage to shush them. The space fell silent, but then another noise became apparent. Two more people, noisily conversing. Two deaf people. They were loudly signing. It was like an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. The eyes of the sauna fell upon me. Was I really going to be that guy, the naked guy in the sauna, telling two deaf people to be quiet? I was not. A couple of hours later, Indrani and I were sat in the comfy reclining seats of Berlin's Grand Planetarium, bathed in orange light, under a huge dome 30 metres in diameter. A relic of the GDR era, this planetarium was the ingenious venue for Mirtzmusik's production of Trilogie de la mort. Troublingly, the orange light and setting vaguely recalled the euthanasia scene in the movie Silent Green, but this impression soon went away and the next three hours of quiet, drone music were at once moving and mind-bending. Indrani by my side quickly fell asleep. After a while, she left. For me, as the music hummed, the dome became a coloured canvas, completely filling my visual field. I had been craving this musical silence. It gave me release. Staring into the dome's seemingly boundless blue light, I had the vertiginous sense of my selfhood being extinguished. It was like the experience you have before a Mark Rothko canvas, when having stared at it for half an hour, weirdly, you find yourself becoming the canvas. hadig I realised, is a French colourist composer, on a par with Ravel and messian After an hour, the music and visuals became one, and I too was one with the gentle blueness and the gentle droning, drifting out of my body through my eyes and ears, becoming those faint scintillations, those gentle undulations. Released from all worldly references, I felt serenely as if I'd left the human scale altogether and become one with the micro scale, life's endless, joyous, nothing, with neither centre nor subject. When there's no frame of reference, only ongoing sonorous becoming and voidedness, the music shows you that a universe subsists outside your body and which, through the artwork, you can be united with. After midnight the concert ended. The house lights went up. Mundane chatter returned. In a late shop I bought a carton of milk. The fridge droned suggestively, On the train home my willpower broke, and mechanically, with shame, I took out my phone and scrolled Twitter.
0: Liam Cagney there in Berlin, missing already the music of Eliane Redig. And finally this time, the sound of Samba from Deep in the Forest. The surprise is that the forest in question is just a little bit outside Common. Bianca Fachel is a Brazilian singer-songwriter who moved to Ireland more than a decade ago and slowly built an environmentally sustainable recording studio in the heart of the forest. This weekend, the studio hosts a hybrid festival following similar principles and bringing together Brazilian and Irish acts in person and via video links, live and recorded. Bianca Fachel spoke to Culture from deep in the forest about making
4: When you
0: play music in the forest
4: The game of life My name is Bianca Fascheo Sometimes you don't know I'm a singer-songwriter how life was meant to be. from south of Brazil Porto Alegre and I'm living in Ireland for the last 12 years the reason I came over here was I just changed my life and I want to pursue music. There is you can do. Is it there? I arrived in Ireland not knowing anyone, but I researched, of course, before. But my research was a bit um, unusual. At the time, I rented a few DVDs and um, watched a few movies. and. One movie that caught my attention was P.S. I Love You. And <laughs> I saw the landscape, the landscape, and I, and I thought, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. And it was music, it was that um, ambience of the pub and, and the, the line story as well, kind of similar with my one of, you know, not giving up of your vocation, your dreams.
0: Your dream was a studio in the forest.
4: Yeah, that was... um, We started thinking, Okay, we could build something with a low environmental impact and resource from the place we are located. We took a long time gathering resources to build the studio and this was challenging and we were renting houses through the years and oh one day I'm gonna use this for the studio this piece and that and we were moving with all these pieces and took a long time to put them together and that's how Birdland Music Studio was born the idea of retreat for artists in the middle of the forest. It's it's a different feeling to be here in the forest because this space where we built the studio it was a clear space we didn't put down any trees or it was just the size there is two windows where we can see the forest and uh, it's like an aquarium on the other side because you can see the birds uh, coming in and. Uh, just at the window they they actually stay here at the window and they fly around here and you know sometimes you're playing a guitar and then you're oh my god there is a bird and uh, you know you feel like you're very connected and um, the forest is so quiet and it it's a great place to to be and be inspired
0: Tell us about the festival. I mean, it follows the principles of the studio in that it's a kind of low environmental impact festival.
4: The most uh, biggest festivals, they, they, they would generate a lot of um, rubbish, for example. Music festivals, on average, they generate 23,500 tons of waste, which includes plastic bottles, food scraps, um, abandoned tents and clothing. They just ended up in a landfill. I, I just had this um, epiphany of okay, that's that's not going that's not going the right path. I think we need to do something about it. And um, yeah, so that's how this feeling of doing a low impact environmental event. There is a few artists uh, that will be um, living abroad, like uh, Jamming. It's a Brazilian artist living in Portugal. His music, it's more as uh, a world music, like uh, more with the roots uh, of Brazilian Afro music, New Soul. And then there is Honey Monsoon as well from U.S., they are from Detroit, uh, Michigan. Um, they are a band that uh, play Afrobeat and uh, jazz fusion. There is um, Donica Listo. It's a singer-songwriter. She's from uh, same uh, hometowns myself. She it's a composer, um, uh, mostly inspired by popular Brazilian music and uh, samba as well. So she uh, would uh, compose more contemporary mixed with all these influences as well. And um, there is... Alexandre Santiago, it's a new uh, artist uh, coming from the festival. There is space for new um, artists as well, starting uh, the career. And uh, he would play samba rock. It's a style in Brazil, very very known. Uh, so I'm bringing these styles as well uh, for people in Europe to know, to, to get more...
3: Uh, familiarized. Uh, so, yeah, there's, uh, it's very eclectic festival.
0: I was talking there to Bianca Fashel about the festival in the forest which happened this afternoon. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more improvised retreats next week. Till then. Bye now.